0: Welcome to the Gem of All Mechanisms podcast, where we interview those in the know from academics and computer scientists to policymakers, philosophers, and more about the effects of 21st century tech on us all. BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT, supports people who work in the industry and wants to make IT good for the whole of society by shaping policy, influencing change, and raising educational standards.
1: welcome to another episode of The Gem of All Mechanisms. Today's guest is Dame Stephanie Shirley, a workplace revolutionary and successful IT entrepreneur, Ted Ardent Philanthropist. Her life story begins with her in 1939 arriving in Britain as an unaccompanied kinder transport refugee. In 1962, she started a software house, freelance programmers that pioneered new work practices and changed the position of professional women, especially in high tech. She went on to create a global business and a personal fortune shared with her colleagues. She made 70 of her staff millionaires at no cost to anyone but herself. Since retiring in 1993, her focus has been increasingly on philanthropy based on her strong belief in giving back to society. In 2009-2010, she served as the UK's first-ever National Ambassador for Philanthropy. Her charitable Shirley Foundation has initiated and funded a number of projects that are pioneering by nature and strategic in impact, totally 67 million to date. The focus is on IT and her late son's disorder of autism. Dame Stephanie has been much honoured. In 2013, she was named by Women's Hour as one of the 100 most powerful women in Britain. In 2014, the Science Council listed her as one of the top 100 practicing scientists in the UK. In 2015, Dame Stephanie was given the Women of the Year Special Award. Her TED Talk in 2015 was to a standing ovation from more than a thousand of the world's most recognized technical entrepreneurs, thinkers, creators and doers. It has received 1.9 million views. In 2017, Dame Stephanie received a Companion of Honour, one of only 65 people worldwide, to receive such a recognition. Over the next 30 minutes, I'll be speaking with Dame Stephanie about making IT good for society, trust and responsibility in technology, and IT ethics.
0: Good morning, Olivia. Hello, hello, how are you? Uh, We're very well. My husband and I are in... um... Voluntary lockdown, but life goes on because I've always worked from home. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And yeah, <laughs> so
1: circumstances are definitely different compared to when we first arranged this, aren't they? If we could start off then just with a few questions about your early childhood years. At the at the early age of, you know, five years old, when you came to the UK through the Kinder Transport System, came with your sister and lived with a foster family. How did that? upheaval and uncertain time in your life kind of shape your your personality and your character and and your sort of outlook on life from then on?
0: Oh Olivia it's made an enormous impact on me and my outlook on life um, and c- continues to do so as today. Having dealt with that change, you know, new family, new food, new language, new nationality, um, I, I realized that I could deal with change. Nothing is is going to compete with that. Um, and I've learned to, to, to actually enjoy change. And that is useful, of course, in, in the digital world. But it also gave me some, some sort of values that have really per- pervade my existence. I determined pretty early on, I mean, as a child, to make sure that mine was a life that was worth saving. And so I do try not to fritter my time away. I do take opportunities such as the BCS presidency, which always came at the wrong time. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if if there's something that I can do for others or or Then I do it. As an example of that, I suppose, I have become a patriot. I'm not a politician in any way, but I do love this country with with a passion that perhaps only someone who has lost their human rights can feel. And so I really do um, I take opportunities to work on national committees and so on as, as a way of contributing to the country that I love.
1: Yeah, that's a really nice outlook, actually. I think, you know, sometimes when people go through hard times, there's kind of two ways to look at it, isn't there? It's like either it makes you stronger or um, for some people... Well, you know,
0: it's the old philosopher Nietzsche who sort of said, what doesn't kill you, strengthens yeah, you.
1: absolutely. And when when you came over to the UK... You attended a few different schools, didn't you? And I was hearing in your your book that one of the, the schools you attended was actually a, a boy's school because they didn't teach <laughs> maths in the
0: in the girls in the grammar schools that you went well, to. This is before the days of, of, of unisex schools. Yeah. Um, and and in my generation, it, science was not considered respectable for girls. I mean, the only one that was allowed, I suppose, was botany, the study of plants. (laughs) So I really had to fight to be taught mathematics and had to change schools twice in order to get that tuition. Um, And I did finish up at a boys' school, only for the maths and science lessons. um, But that was a useful introduction (laughs) to the gauntlet of leering and catcalls and whistling that was then women's lot. Um, things have moved on a little bit but <laughs> there's still remnants of that soft sexism.
1: And then you moved on to one of your first jobs was at the post office research station working with hardware and machine code and throughout your career you, you stayed within the field of IT. Was that kind of a, a conscious choice to stick with IT or or did that just happen naturally? Is it something you were always interested in?
0: It, it ha- What I was always interested in uh, with mathematics. I was going to be the world's leading mathematician and solve something called Fermat's Last Theorem, which is one of those sort of puzzling things that took another fifty years to do. Um, but uh, when computers came along, uh, I am classed as a as a late pioneer um, because you did need mathematics in the early days to to even work on them. And I was lucky that moving into the software area. Um, I was not going to be the world's greatest mathematician, but I have been able to contribute to the software industry. Uh, I was a founder, a member of the British Computer Society, and proud to have been its president and so on. But I've also made um, not technical in general, uh, but managerial uh, impact on on the industry, because I was one of the... Uh, earliest people to consider the social impact of computing. Um, I followed really Enid Mumford from Manchester University, she was an academic, not a doer, um, but she's the only one that had ever touched on these what, what are the social implications of computing, and I picked that up and made it something very special for women.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned the, the social implications. How, how do you think the social implications have kind of changed from that time until now?
0: I think the general population is much more committed to the social implications today than it was. It used to be, I mean, the DPS itself was entirely technical, no marketing aspect <laughs> mm. at all. Thinking of it, it was just so fascinating. And of course, it, it, when the industry started, Um, It it was absolutely fascinating in a different way, um, perhaps, than today. Um, But, I mean, you know, we we couldn't stop. Our employers should have charged us rent or something because we were there all hours of the day and night just fascinating, learning how to do this, learning how to make the computer do that, thinking about, oh, they were great times when when you're first in the industry. And uh, it was a virgin uh, field and so one was able to contribute um.
1: and i think as well now like you mentioned about them it being very very technically focused and even now like bcs the um, our sort of mission is making IT good for society, which is a, a recognition that now computers and, and, you know, the online world and everything has an impact on, on everyone's life. I think you know yeah. Everyone's got computers in the home, smartphones, everything. The way sort of technology is impacting on young people, there's just so much more of a... It affects the whole population now, doesn't
0: it? Well, and, and also I think during this current crisis, people are realising... Oh, yes! Some of these new ways of doing yeah, it's useful, isn't it 's useful isn 't it? I can still do this i can maybe I should learn to do my banking, maybe I should learn to do my shopping electronically
1: to go back to the the career side, you set up the um freelance programmers organization in the 1960s and
0: 1962,
1: 1962, an organisation with an all-female staff and most of them with caregiving responsibilities. (laughs) I really like the bit in your um, book where it says about um, you having clients call in and um, there was children crying in the background. So he made a tape recording of um, people typing and
0: then played well, that. one of the things that women have to, have to do. You have to put your best foot forward. Mm. And if domestic noises are going to put people off and make people think that you're not really professional about what you are doing, then you have to disguise those.
1: Yeah.
0: And certainly when I, if you've read my book, there are other occasions where Looking back, I think, yeah, all I was really doing was disguising some yeah. weakness.
1: And with a lot of people working flexibly and remotely in, in job shares in the organisation, that setup is really pioneering, because even now we call those things that modern working practices, don't Yeah, I and mean,
0: it's ridiculous. I was doing them 50 years ago. I, yeah. mean, I think I did one of the first job shares. And you know, It was a, a crusade to have a social business that had... Values that are independent of the bottom line.
1: I, think, I don't know if you've read um, Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, but it's almost sort of like a, a modern commentary on these types of things where um, she was saying about in the offices, she went for one client meeting and asked where the toilets were and they didn't know what direction to <laughs> point her in for the women's toilets. And I mean, um,
0: yeah. I mean I've had that as well in, in government departments. Yeah. You know, on the director's floor, they didn't have a lady's toilet. All these things are relatively new and people are quite horrified. With, with The Lean In, I, I found this a very interesting book, but it was very much for the corporate world, Yes, and I seriously thought of, should I write something for the entrepreneur, for <laughs> yes. the small business things, where a lot of the things are, are, are different and the solutions are different. But I never got round to it maybe now while I've got a bit of time I can
1: do that that would be amazing Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was what made you decide to set up and run freelance programs in this way did you do it as like a conscious decision to um, include talented females in it or did it just kind of naturally happen like that and the working practices oh no it
0: was very very conscious it was a crusade I was sick and tired of being patronised as a woman Mm. and I really wanted to create an organisation of the sort that I would have liked to have worked for, with and in, and I knew that women would probably like to work in the same way, and that largely depended on the two things that women always um, say they want, work-life balance and flexibility, and certainly flexibility we gave to the extreme, and the work-life balance became a work-life merger, really. So I mean yeah. homeworking was was intrinsic to the way in which um minute number one in the company's annals, Olivia, was that it should be a the company policy to um employ women with children. Oh wow, okay. So, yeah. Minute number one. That it was a social business. I did not go in it to make money though it, you know, after twenty five years I did, it took a long, yeah. long time before <laughs> it made any money.
1: I thought as well in the book, I really liked the way um, it shows completely how you did everything from the beginning. So completely learning how to sort of run a business while you were running the business so obviously those are people you know fortunate enough to have had um, worked in a business before setting up their own one or have done you know business management courses and stuff like that but when it was speaking about um, you know how to do the payroll and then doing the the um, you know allowing oh, people very to be stakeholders on the job, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was amazing like honestly the... I do
0: like to learn I like to do new things I have a very low boredom threshold
1: you touched on this just a, a minute ago about sexism in the workplace obviously it is something unfortunately you did experience and in the last few years we've had um things like the me too movement where the lid's been lifted on the the scale of abuse and injustice and I think now unfortunately things are happening like where men are reluctant or unsure about things like um, mentoring female colleagues and stuff like that and yeah unfortunately that's quite harmful i think there's quite a lot of very successful women who can explain a time when men have really advocated them and that's been a really pivotal pivotable kind of time in their in their career so what's your view on stuff like the me too movement and how do you think we can ensure that it doesn't have like negative side effects on women
0: i think the original emphasis of of the me too movement was, was was against sexual harassment and assault. And it was not targeted at the sort of soft sexism we get in the working environment. And and th- there we have relied on equal pay legislation and things like the gender pay gap. But when it comes to me too, I say, about time, you know. I mean, I can remember um, pitching a ma- major software contract to a junior minister who was pinching my bottom. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it, it was unspeakable, really. And I do wonder whether the Me Too movement should really focus on just the worst types of abuse mm. and so prevent casting all men as perpetrators. Because the emphasis always seems to be on the perpetrator yeah. rather than supporting the victim.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, there is a danger of the pendulum swinging too far and... and but, I mean, in general, I think the Me Too movement is making a real difference. I really admire the women that started it yeah. uh, and the women that are progressing it today. Absolutely. I mean, how long has it been going? A couple of years? Yes, yeah, so
1: that's it. It's, it's like two, two and a half years, something like that, yeah. Yeah. A moment ago, I mentioned about the BCS Rural Charter, which is, um, states the mission for us of making IT good for society. And IT obviously does impact all of us in lots of different ways. And I think the IT sector is quite renowned for having Different acronyms and buzzwords, and and more uh, and more yeah. all the time, isn't there? Internet of Things, IoT, Big Data, AI, and and they can be really confusing and misleading when there's so many of them as well. And um, someone from from Google recently said that um, AI actually should be called cognitive automation. And there's all yeah, these different terms. That. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> and <laughs> do you think there's anything that people working in IT and computing can do to better communicate these complex issues?
0: Well, I think. The- I have a good think about this question. I I think the BCS could have the equivalent of the Royal Society's public understanding of science group, um, and that could be extended to what they call PEST, public engagement with science and technology, Mm. uh, and really, you know, as a very positive thing, say we are going to deal with this problem of, you know, we're all an in-group, we can talk about these acronyms and so on. That's ridiculous. Why should everybody else learn um, how, how to communicate with us? We have to communi- learn to communicate with the with the wide world outside. Yeah.
1: To carry on on that kind of topic, thinking about um, responsibility, there's recent political situations and online harms, and social media regulations become uh, a big focus lately. And um, social media bosses now could be held personally liable for online harms. What do you think about that? Because. For me, I sometimes think that there's a, a delicate balance there between the creator and the consumer, because as social media users, I think we all have a responsibility to use the platform in a responsible way ourselves and communicate respectfully using the tools that have been provided to us. But then obviously the creators do also have responsibility to make their tools robust against misuse. So where, where do you think that kind of responsibility lies?
0: Well, I'm not sure we should ever think in terms of a responsible consumer. I'm reminded back to my early design days where um, we used to try and design equipment to be foolproof. And one of my teams sort of said, but fools are so ingenious. (laughs) Because whatever is possible to do wrong will go wrong. People will do it. Um, And so it is very much a responsibility um, of the creator and that's part of the excitement of creating, being able to provide something that really makes a difference to people's lives uh, and difference for good.
1: Do you think that um, some campaigns, we do almost like a disservice by how we approach them. So, for example, when we think of the number of women in IT, it's stuck around 17% for quite a long time now. And there's loads of campaigns um, raising awareness of women in technology and, and women in STEM. Do you think that sometimes there's a bit too much of a focus on restating the problems rather than getting practical solutions in place?
0: You're probably right, actually. I mean, I've driven a car for years without understanding how the internal combustion engine works. And I think people need to a- a- address some of today's issues in that sense going for um, solutions um, and usage rather than analysing how the problem has been and, 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 and is. Um, the Oxford Internet Institute, of which I'd quite like to talk a bit, um, has really approached some of these problems in a very um, academic sort of way. Um, and they are they real issues. I mean, the 17% figure for women is, is appalling, just appalling. But, you know, it's not going to change without changes in society and changes advocated and encouraged by men.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
0: you know, women, we can go on... Um, advocating for this, that, that and the other. But it's not going to happen until men actually join in, which some of them are doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you, you mentioned the the Oxford Internet Institute there and you set up and fund their work and it focuses on the social, legal and ethical issues that come out of the online environment. Do you think that IT professionals, in your view, do take into account the ethical considerations enough?
0: Well, I've got a bit of a hobby horse, but... We should need a really sort of Hippocratic oath for um, graduating science, sorry, try again. The the one for graduating scientists, I I don't know if you know it, but I promise to work for a better world where science and technology are used in socially responsible ways. I will not use my education for any purpose intended to harm human beings or the environment. I will consider the ethical implications of my work before I take action. And I, they signed this declaration because I recognise that individual responsibility is the first step on the path to peace. Now, you know, that is used by people. The American um, engineers use it. The Canadian engineers use it, something very similar. And, and these are things I think worth worth considering.
1: And like you said, the individual Responsibility is like the f- the first port of call, and if someone's worried that they were involved in producing an algorithm that led to biased results, let's say, for example, then we obviously want them to be free to speak out with that um, Hippocratic Oath style sort
0: well, of, it, you know, it gives you a basis. That's right. This is against the that I talk. Yeah, Um
1: that's
0: But right. I mean, we do now in this country have protection for whistleblowing, and and that's a sort of whistleblowing. Uh, I was asked to do this, and I did it. Well, I did it by mistake, I now want to remedy it, um, but basically it's wrong.
1: And that's very interesting because we do—we have a, a report that I think is um, we're just collating the results for now and one part of it is where um, people who are filling it in have the opportunity to uh, give a, a, an anonymous kind of example of a time where they have been asked to do something um in there, really? yeah. I, I bet
0: you get some interesting stuff. I bet there. we do.
1: I haven't seen them yet, but I bet there are some really interesting ones in there. And exactly what you're saying if we had this type of oath, then it gives people the kind of um, the legs. Gives some to,
0: solid grounding yeah. to sort of say, well, that's against not my principles, but the principles of, yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: But I um, mean, as, as I understand it, beyond the needs of a project, Um, no one is legally forced to declare the ways in which data will be used. So, you know, we've got a long way to go to sort of try and define what it is that we're doing. And the the technology is changing so fast. I think particularly with AI, it's difficult enough to sort sort out what you're doing in some of the older stuff, (laughs) let alone with the, you know, super intelligent
1: computing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like... What were you just saying about the, well, you mentioned AI there and the people who work on the projects obviously know what's happening behind the scenes, but the the people who are getting the, the finished product maybe don't really know. And I think especially with AI, it's kind of portrayed in, you know, media and films as something that's a bit mysterious, maybe even sometimes a bit threatening. We talk a lot about sort of trust and transparency and explainability. And I think for me, like, the idea of trust, trust is like when you trust in something that you don't know fully what's happening behind it. But with transparency, if you're really, really transparent, it almost like removes the need for trust because you don't need to trust it. Everything's laid out on the knows. table. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know what's happening. So how yeah. important is it, do you think, that um, algorithmic decisions are, are made at least sort of explainable? Do you think that creators and companies should be... Um, Showing a bit more behind the scenes. Uh, people say it's almost like a black box, isn't it? No one really knows what's going on in there. Do you think that it well, should be? I, I
0: use the parallel with, with the internal combustion engine where um, I, I don't think it's necessary for me to understand what the engineer has put in, into the engine. All I need to do is, is understand how to use it. It's the user, my decisions yeah. as a user, as a driver, um, as, as, as Alan Turing, for example, certainly, um, and he was the forerunner of artificial intelligence, and and back in the 30s, was saying very firmly that the machines will take over, it's a question of when and how, and and so it behoves us to to recognise that fact, that we're no longer, long term, human beings are no longer going to be in control.
1: Is An interesting thought, and I think you know. In a, another few years' time, we again we won't believe how fast things have moved and, and where we are. So, yeah. I mean, there's
0: never been such a rate of change, and and it, it, yet it will never be as slow again.
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it. Really? Obviously your, your amazing book Let It Go is, is out now and I heard that this is even being made into a a film and it's funny isn't it because you go to dinner parties and people sometimes ask you uh, who would you like to play you in a movie and that is genuinely something that is happening for you. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: well, I, I'm, I'm rather thrilled about this obviously. Um, we, we, we've been talking about it, I mean, it's, so slow. Everyone told me it would be slow. I can't believe how slow it's been. So we now have a producer, director. We have the funding of $17.5 Um, It's being done through the Artist Partnership. Uh, we have a prize-winning woman director oh. um, who, who has... Her name is Haifa al Mansour spell that out if you like. H-A-I-F-A-A. H-A-I-F-A-A. And then her surname is Al A L Hyphen Mansour M A N S O U R. But I mean, basically, she's been chosen because she had a focus always on strong women. Um, directed the, the Mary Shelley book, the Shelley film. Um, she did a very famous one called Dangal. Um, and, and she she's she, she herself uh, a sort of minority group from from Saudi Arabia. So you know very and interesting choice for me, and the sort of names that I I have the veto on who plays me, um, but it is a veto. And the names that have been suggested so far, um, and I think are shortlisted, is Claire Foy, who did something fairly good on TV recently. I think she was in The Queen. And Emily Blunt. I mean, I don't really follow actors, but those are the sort of names being talked about. It's going to be really quite something empty. Um, I just wish they'd hurry up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <And get filming. laughs> will you have much involvement in sort of like um the, the filming and the direction of it?
0: No. Um, I mean I think I will turn up because one, you know, has, has some sort of consultancy role to sort of say that's wrong, yeah. that that gives the wrong impression or whatever it is. And I want to make sure that um some of my idealism does does come through. Mm. And it's not just a a money-making, funny women-ha-ha in business. Because all the focus of the film is going to be on the women in business. Uh, It it doesn't really move on to my philanthropy. It doesn't really touch on my son's autism or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, you do uh, a lot of um, charitable work. We've obviously, we've mentioned the Oxford Internet Institute, but can't go without saying as well, like you just mentioned, a lot of the charitable work that you do for young people with difficulties like autism. Well,
0: I, I really only concentrate on the things I know and care about. Mm. And there are only really two, uh, information technology uh, which is my professional discipline, and I still think of myself as a business and IT person. Um, and autism, which was my late son's condition. My spend is, is about 25% on IT and 75% on autism, mm. and that sort of sets some sort of tone. On the IT side, apart from the Oxford Internet Institute, which was over 10 million, um, I also um, am the major sponsor for the IT livery company in the City of London, mm. which is concerned with society and charity. Um, very much. Olivia, I found it so, I think this is in the book, I found it so thrilling that a refugee like me should be able to contribute to the livery movement which has been going on for 600 years in the City of London. You know, I just found it such a a privilege. Um, But mainly those are my two big ones in the IT area. Um, On the autism side, I started off with the long-term care Support service for my son, and now 250 is like him of a similar sort of uh, severe uh, vulnerability. Uh, I've got a school <clears throat> which has um, 600 staff and two, uses two teaching robots to so be able to get my IT in there. <laughs> so the, the, um, we, we've got fingerprint locking in the first charity. So that instead of the children having to have keys to their own bedroom, which get lost and all that sort of thing, they use their fingerprints to get into their room. And um, the third one is Autistica, which is medical research into autism, um, which again doesn't use IT much, but the school uses IT very much to analyse what is happening that you've got. um, For every incident that happens with, with our little children, We've got something called ABC, uh, antecedent, what was happening before, before this incident where somebody flipped or something like that. What was the actual behavior that it engendered? Um, and what was the following thing that all that has to be analyzed? And that's all done by a computer system now, a multi million pound project that has started already, but we're still fundraising for. So, you know, I try to bring the, my, my IT skills into the autism field. I did one of the very first virtual conferences back in 1988. And then that was not, I thought it was the first, um, but it turned out to be a third, the first in the disability field. And that was attended by 65,000 people. And, um, you know, I'm enormously proud of that. In That's the 90s, I was doing some early virtual reality for people with autism to teach them how to... Uh, find their way round their city to have to find a take a seat on a bus because it's very fatal if they just take the first available seat um, so I was always trying to use my i t in the whole of my life,
1: yeah, I really like that, and exactly what you're saying all these types of technologies it just shows how it crosses over into everything, and I love how <coughs> how um how benevolent you've been in in sharing your wisdom in that area and also just your general sort of like enthusiasm and positive outlook on things that maybe were a really di- difficult time in your life, but you've kind of turned it around and are trying to make that situation better for other so. people. I, I think it's so. absolutely amazing, honestly. And it's been such a privilege to speak to you. I think you're genuinely incredible. Um, and I was like
0: nervous before we were Oh, Olivia, yeah. stop it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it's really good. And I think it's really nice. Like you've obviously been involved with us for um, well, you know, a long, a long time ago, and, oh, and done, job, yes. yeah, and done some really good work with us, and um, it's really nice to be able to kind of like reconnect with you now, and and share some of your thoughts on the stuff that's happening. It's been a, a real pleasure to speak to you. So thank you so it's much. It's been a great
0: pleasure to me too, Olivia. It's lovely.
1: Please do take care of yourself. I, w- I you too. Yeah. Okay. That's All great. All the best. Thank you so
0: much. Bye. Okay. Bye. 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 bye.
1: That concludes another episode of The Gem of All Mechanisms. If you're interested in listening to more, we've got episodes with guests, including tech ethics expert, Luciano Floridi, CEO of Dot Everyone, Catherine Miller, and the government's chief people officer, Rupert McNeil. You can find them on Spotify and Apple podcasts. Just search The Gem of All Mechanisms. This series is brought to you by BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. You can find out more about our work at bcs.org.